Uh, I can't remember who used this illustration. It might have actually been the guy whose video I I gave you to watch, the 10-minute the Bible hour guy. I watched a bunch of his videos to see if I should credit him properly. It wasn't him. I don't know who it was, but whoever it was, they used this illustration, and I liked it, so I'm going to use it too. So it's not entirely original, and I apologize for that, but at least it's not another Edmonton Oilers analogy, which I default to all the time, and you guys get really tired of. So it's something different than that, and you're welcome. But this person... This person, whoever it was, uh, talked about that thing that happened to people who watched sitcoms uh, mostly in the 90s. And the 90s were the golden age of sitcoms. You had Seinfeld, uh, The Simpsons, Friends. Angie wants me to say Full House, but I'm not going to say Full House. Um, Yeah, no, big old X over Full House. Anyway, every once in a while, you'd tune into your favorite sitcom and it would start new and fresh. And that was exciting. But then the whole family of this in the sitcom or the characters were all sit down on a couch, kind of like you see here. They're all sitting around something. And they would start to reminisce. And then it would flash back to a clip from another episode. And you say, oh, no, it's a clip episode. Hated clip episodes as a kid. A clip episode is when they took a bunch of scenes from a bunch of episodes and cobbled them together with these, like, interspersing um, little in- tying things. It was a ripoff because you wanted a new episode and instead you just got scenes from episodes you've already seen. And it was really frustrating. It was the worst part of my childhood, which tells you just how privileged I grew up. Uh, sometimes it would happen for the holidays and so they'd reminisce about past holiday episodes. But usually you could tell it was just the, the writers were lazy and uncreative and it was really frustrating to me. I want new content. Write something new. How hard is that? Well, I have bad news for you. Today's sermon deals with the last piece of a story that began way back at the beginning of Acts 10, which we started a month and a half ago. And in, in many ways, this morning's message is a clip episode. It's, I'm sorry. I know it's disappointing. I know you feel the same disappointment I felt tuning in and they're all reminiscing about stuff you've already seen. So it's going to feel very familiar um, because it's all stuff, a big chunk of our passage today. There's, there's 18 verses and 14 of them are just Peter retelling a story that we already studied in the last chapter. So it's going to feel very familiar. You're going to be tempted to treat this like a clip episode and tune out or change the channel or fall asleep. But please don't, because although most of the content will be familiar, uh, I hope we can draw out a new principle for us to apply to our faith, uh, even as Luke repeats the same story for the second and third time. So let's read Acts 11, verses 1 to 18. Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. I'm going to pause here. Verse 2, but when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. A better translation is some circumcised men uh, criticized him. And that will become important later. But their criticism was this. You entered the home of of Gentiles and you even ate with them they said, Gentiles being anybody who's not Jewish. Then Peter told them exactly what had happened. I was in the town of Joppa, he said, and while I was praying, I went into a trance and saw a vision. Something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. When I looked inside this sheet, I saw all kinds of small animals, wild animals, reptiles, and birds. And I heard a voice say, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord. I replied, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. 
But the voice from heaven spoke again, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. This happened three times before the sheet and all it contained was pulled back up to heaven. We know the message of this is that now the Gentiles are accepted. They are no longer impure, no longer to be viewed as unclean. Just as God says, take and eat anything you want, you are free. That same freedom applies to human beings. Anybody is welcomed into the party, into the, into the feast. We're all welcome to the table, Jew or Gentile alike. Just then, three men uh, who had been sent from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were staying. The Holy Spirit told me to go with them and not to worry that they were Gentiles. These six brothers here accompanied me, and we soon entered the home of the man who had sent for us. He told us how an angel had appeared to him in his home and had told him, Send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He will tell you how you and everyone in your household can be saved. As I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as he fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Um, That was in... Acts 1, uh, I believe, Jesus said that. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. That's Acts 11, 1 to 18. So you caught the familiar part, right? It's basically just a rehash of something we've already read before, verses 4 to 17. Peter just going over what had happened in chapter 10. So Peter rehashes the story of his vision and the crucial crucial messages therein. Uh, he, his, he goes over his encounter with Cornelius, the descending of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles, and the ramifications for the church moving forward and including the Gentiles. We've been examining for for weeks now, and I don't, I know I don't need to go into too much depth about it, but there are However, a few new details, a few new wrinkles to give this familiar story some extra flavor. Uh, So I want to highlight those uh, for a couple minutes. First of all, whereas in Acts 10, Peter had a vision of the three categories of animals recorded in the flood account. You might remember we talked about this four-legged animal. So that's basically domestic animals, cows and sheep and whatnot. Um, And creeping animals and birds. Those are the three in the original story that Peter saw on the sheet as it was lowered down. Here he relays a version of four categories of animals, including wild beasts, which are a separate category in Jewish thinking from just four-legged animals. Um, In the flood account, there are three categories mentioned by Peter in chapter 10. Uh, You have to go back even further to the creation account to see four categories of animals. What does this mean? You may be wondering why I'm bringing this up. Well, the reason I bring it up is it seems that Peter, in chapter 11, is suggesting that this new work of God, the welcoming of Gentiles into the kingdom, extends back even further than they had originally thought, that this was a plan that goes beyond what they had expected. The welcoming of Gentiles, it goes beyond the day of Pentecost. It goes beyond the arrival of Jesus Christ. It goes beyond the call of Abraham. It goes beyond the flood of Noah. And perhaps it goes back to God's original plan for creation that all people would be made pure and have access to his glorious presence. That's the story of of creation, of Adam and Eve before the fall. That's what that story is there for. That's what it teaches us, is that this is life as it was intended to be. And it was intended to be in relationship with God our Father, with nothing between us. That's why they're naked in the garden. There's literally nothing between them. No shame to put up any barrier between them and their God. 
And perhaps what Peter's just by including that fourth category of animal, he's suggesting to them this goes way back to the very beginning. This was God's plan for all people to come to him, just as it was always intended to be. So there's all those implications, and that might be a real big stretch. I don't know. Uh, I, I thought it was cool, though. Um, but simply by adding that fourth category of wild beasts, it goes from before the flood back to creation, back to as life as it was intended to be. So there's that little wrinkle. There's another interesting wrinkle of difference between Peter's recalling of the, event, the events in chapter 11 and Luke's original telling in chapter 10. And that's found in uh, 11 verse 12, where it says, The Holy Spirit told me to go with them and not to worry that they were Gentiles. And these six brothers here accompanied me. These six brothers. Peter mentions that he brought along with him six witnesses to Cornelius the Gentile's home. Um, we knew in back in chapter 10, it says in 10.23, that some believers had accompanied Peter to this Gentile's house. We knew that some people had gone with him. But this accompanying party plays a big role here in chapter 11. See, Peter is an apostle. In fact, he is leader of the apostles. When it comes to the church, he is the authoritative figure, obviously next to the Holy Spirit himself. But he is also prone to action without consideration of consequence. We saw this throughout the Gospels. Who is it that says, hey, I can walk on the water? It's Peter. Who is it that then sees the waves and says, oh, I shouldn't be walking on the water and starts to fall? It's Peter. Who is it that boldly declares Jesus to be the Messiah? It's Peter. Who is it that witnesses the transfiguration and says, this is so wonderful, uh, we need to build some shelters so that, so that this never has to end? And Jesus is like, no, it has to end. Because of course it has to end. And Peter just was blurting out. He didn't know what else to say. So he just said whatever first came to his mouth. Because that's Peter. Who was it that denied Jesus three times while Jesus was just meters away from him? After being told that he would deny Jesus three times by Jesus himself. And then denying to Jesus that he would ever deny Jesus. If that didn't make any sense, listen to the podcast. Play it back. It'll make sense. Peter denied Jesus three times. He was told he would do that. He said, no, I'll never do that. And then he does it anyway. Because Peter doesn't think before he does stuff. Sometimes that's a good thing, like walking on water, like declaring Jesus the Messiah. Sometimes it gets him in trouble. And this is a reputation I'm sure Peter had with the whole church. Peter just does stuff. Um, and we saw that in Acts too. Whenever something needs to be done, Peter just steps up and does it or says it or whatever needs to happen. Acting without thinking, that's Peter's specialty. And so it was with wisdom and shrewdness that Peter brought witnesses along with him to the home of a Gentile. Some might say that he was endangering these accompanying men by putting them in the blast zone of impurity that was a Gentile house. But it was actually really wise. These six witnesses, along with Peter, the seventh witness, and seven is the number of perfection and completion in Scripture, these seven witnesses are the ones who validate Peter's testimony about what the Holy Spirit is doing. The whole Jewish legal system, both socially and religiously, was predicated on eyewitnesses. That was of, of crucial importance for everything. And this comes up in the Gospels. The Gospels make it clear that it was written based on eyewitness accounts to give them authority. Uh, it should come as no surprise, therefore, that eyewitnesses were needed to verify the events of one of the most significant policy changes in the history of the church. The invitation of the Gentiles to take a seat at the table of the kingdom of God. And not just one eyewitness who is himself prone to wild decision-making. It would not be out of the realm of possibility for Peter to show up at a Gentile's house and say, Hey, you guys are invited in the kingdom now. Without really thinking about the consequences. 
But because there were six witnesses with him who saw the Holy Spirit descend and the speaking in tongues and all that, then Peter's story is corroborated. Not You needed at least was it two witnesses legally in the Jewish system. Here, there's six. Added to seven, or added to Peter, that's seven. That's the perfect number. So when he brings this account back to the leaders in Jerusalem, they can know that his story is true. Even though Peter's prone to rash decisions. They don't need to doubt this. God is really doing this new thing. These witnesses, they didn't witness Peter at work. They witnessed God at work. And that's why Peter mentions these six fellows who are there with him. So those are just two interesting, interesting to me. I don't know how interesting they were in, in reality, but two differences between the telling of the story in Acts 10 and the retelling in Acts 11. Other than that, verses 4 to 17, it's a clip episode. It's all the same. It's an important message. And, you know, even, even the fact that the story gets banged out one more time in a document that has limited space, there's a lesson in there just in that. The fact that Luke goes, he doesn't just say, so Peter told the whole story and he was accepted. Luke takes the time to go through that story again. Why does he do that? Well, in Jewish teaching, and really it's no different today, we repeat the things that are most important. We repeat the things that are most important. We repeat, never mind. I do this in kindergarten. You sing the same song five times in a row so it gets drilled into their brain. We do this with our daughters. Are you going to clean the house after supper or clean your room? What are you going to do after supper? You're going to clean your room. Hey, it's after supper. What are you going to do now? Clean your room. And they still forget. Um, I did this while I was teaching at Bible club on Friday. I bet I said the phrase, God makes a way probably a dozen times in the 10 minutes I was talking to the kids because that's the thing I wanted to nestle into their brain right beside how the ingredients for making slime and where the bathrooms are in the church. And the words to, my God is so big. All those things occupy space. And if you repeat it, it really gets drilled in. Well, that's what Luke is doing here as well. Luke, our author. The reason the story of Peter's vision is recounted in long form in chapter 10 and then again in long form in chapter 11, um, is because it's monumentally important. Repetition means importance in Jewish writing, in any writing. Gentiles have been invited to the party. They have a seat at God's table. That is a big, big deal. And Luke wants us to get that. Acts may follow a gospel. It's part two of Luke's gospel. But it's less like the gospel in some ways and more like the book of Genesis in, in a lot of ways because every story in Acts might as well end with and nothing was ever the same again. Because time after time in Acts, that's what we see. And it was like that in Genesis. God creates everything and nothing was ever the same again. Humans introduce sin and nothing was ever the same again. One brother kills another brother. Murder is introduced to the world. Nothing was ever the same again. All the people speak one language, they begin to worship themselves, so God confuses their language, and nothing was ever the same again. Everyone's sinful all the time, God wipes them out with a flood, nothing was ever the same again. God calls Abraham from Ur, and nothing was ever the same again. Over and over, that's what Genesis is like, and that's what Acts is like too, right? You think, Jesus ascended to heaven, nothing was ever the same again. He sent the Holy Spirit, nothing was ever the same again. 3,000 people started the first church and they were very giving and very free with their possessions and nothing was ever the same again. And then one of them, one of these believers, was stoned to death by the Jewish authorities and nothing was ever the same again. Paul encounters Jesus. 
Nothing was ever the same again. Well, this is another one of those things. Peter has this vision. The Gentiles are now welcome to the party, and nothing was ever the same again. Say it with me. Nothing was ever the same again. We know that's true because 2,000 years later, here's a bunch of Gentiles sitting in church, worshiping and praising Jesus. And there's no circumcised Jews busting down the door to say, no, you're not allowed to do that. We are allowed to do that. Nothing was ever the same again. And to emphasize how nothing was ever the same again, Luke repeats the story word for word, more or less, so we really get its importance. Uh, Where was I? (laughs) Right, nothing was ever the same again. That's right. Uh, This is one of the biggest nothing was ever the same again. Gentiles, like you and me, are now part of God's plan. We are invited into salvation. We are God's holy people, even though we aren't Jewish. That's who they understood to be God's people. Well, now it's all people, and nothing was ever the same again. There's one other difference that I haven't mentioned yet between Luke's account in chapter 10 and Peter's account in chapter 11. And it's found in, it's a small thing, but it's found in Peter's retelling of Cornelius' vision in 11.14, where Peter says, send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. That's what Cornelius' task was. He will tell you how you and everyone in your household can be saved. Now that's new. In the original account, Cornelius doesn't get that message. That's not something the angel ever says to Cornelius. And when Cornelius meets with Peter face-to-face in Cornelius' house, Cornelius doesn't say, God wanted me to get you, to bring you to my house so that me and my house could be saved. Cornelius doesn't know that's what's going to happen. So Peter is putting words into Cornelius' mouth, but he's not being untruthful. He's explaining exactly what the situation was that was unfolding when he met with Cornelius in his household. Salvation for all Gentiles was now possible. For anyone who loves God and loves their neighbors. And those are two qualities that are not limited to Jewish people. Anybody can love God. Anybody can love the people around them. Anybody can demonstrate those dual loves. It's not something that just Jews do. Anyone can do that. And so salvation did come to Cornelius when Peter came to his house. And because salvation came to Cornelius, salvation comes to us as well. And this obviously, is a huge, huge deal. So huge, in fact, that word of Peter's actions have reached Jerusalem before even he has. The word spreads, hey, did you hear? Peter was having dinner with some Gentiles. Can you believe it? And so that word spreads all the way from Joppa, no, they're not in Joppa, Caesarea, all the way back to Jerusalem before Peter gets back to Jerusalem, which makes sense, really. Those who applaud the inclusion of the Gentiles, like, say, the Gentiles, They would be thrilled with the news and would tell everyone as fast as they could. And those who vehemently oppose the inclusion of the Gentiles, like, oh, say, the angry circumcised dudes we meet at the top of chapter 11, they would likewise spread the news out of disgust and shock. And you know what? It's in the heart and minds of these circumcised believers that we get our new message for today. This is where it stops being a clip episode, and now it's something new. These circumcised dudes teach us something that is crucially important. And some of you get uncomfortable with me using that word all the time. I think it's hilarious, so I'm just going to keep saying it. See, though there had been a wave of persecution already, and some Christians had already lost their lives for their faith, the apostles never really lost the shine of their goodwill amongst the people. They stayed in Jerusalem. I mean, there's, they do out trips to Samaria and to wherever. Peter, for instance, goes out to Caesarea. They do these out trips, but 
Ground zero for the church is still Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, the apostles still have a lot of authority and goodwill amongst the people. They were relatively unscathed despite an imprisonment or two here or there. Now, that will soon change. In chapter 12, the first apostle will be martyred. But for now, they're kind of bulletproof in a sense. The crowds love and respect them and the authorities fear the crowd, so they don't don't do anything to the apostles out of fear of the crowds. But all of that would be threatened if word got out amongst the general population of Jewish people in Jerusalem that Peter was associating with Gentiles. That was, I know I went over this weeks ago, that was a huge, huge, huge deal. And no amount of goodwill could protect even a man with Peter's stature from the damage that would come with such an accusation. And so the fellow leaders of the church needed to deal with the issue promptly before it threatened to blow up in their face. And so that's what sets this conflict apart uh, from other conflicts in Acts. Aside from in chapter 6, there was the the Greek-speaking widows who weren't getting their fair share of the food. Aside from that, this was the first instance of conflict within the church itself. The Sanhedrin and Rome and guys like Saul, who became Paul, they were threats from outside the kingdom. Here, however, the threat was coming from within the house itself. Therefore, it needed to be dealt with swiftly. It threatened to ruin their whole reputation among all these people they're trying to save. Just having one guy having one meal with one Gentile house threatened to ruin everything. And so they needed to deal with it swiftly. And so Peter is called to give an account for the horrifying act of, as it says in verse 3, going into the house of uncircumcised men and eating with them. That's what it says. Now, I know the first thing any of you do when you're invited for dinner is check with the male host whether they're circumcised or not. I know you do. I do the same thing. I know. Oh, you're planning to barbecue a few hot dogs? Sounds lovely. Oh, and speaking of hot dogs, that reminds me. I have an important question for you. That seems totally normal, right? (laughs) It seems totally weird to us. But it's not weird at all to them. To these Jewish believers, it is the most important question. Are they circumcised? Are they Gentiles or are they Jews? Associated with that is what kind of food are they eating? We talked about that too. Food and circumcision were two of the huge identifying marks of being God's people. If you weren't circumcised, you weren't God's person. And if you ate food you weren't supposed to eat, you likewise were not one of God's people. And so both of these issues are put... (laughs) Just thinking of Angie's face, sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Both of these issues are put to the test in Peter's vision. And all Peter needs to do is recount the events exactly as they happen. He doesn't add flourishes. He doesn't do any. He just tells the story exactly like it is. Because in the story itself is all the proof he needs that what he's doing is is right and acceptable and actually God-ordained. So the food, the circumcision, those are huge barriers between Jews and Gentiles. Yeah. Even to, the reason eating with the Gentile was so, what's the big deal? You're just eating with them. Well, Gentiles had completely different food restrictions than Jewish people did. You don't know what those filthy Gentiles are serving you. Could be anything. Could be food sacrificed to idols. Could be pork in there. You never know. You just can't trust it. And so one of the cardinal rules of being Jewish was you don't sit down and have table fellowship with a Gentile. You just don't do it. It's not okay. That's why... That's why the passage goes out of its way to highlight these are circumcised people and these are not circumcised people. It's a huge, huge deal. And Peter is just waltzing right through those walls, just smashing them down without care for what that would mean for the reputation of the church. Which is why these 
Circumcised believers need to deal with it ASAP. It is a crucially important question that they need answers for. And so Peter doesn't need to do anything except just say, tell them the events as it happened with these six witnesses backing him up. All he does is tell the story. There's no commentary. There's no anything. He just says what happened, which is perfect because at the end, he throws in this little nugget. He wraps up the story with this. The Gentiles received the Holy Spirit just as we Jews did. And I might add, they received the Holy Spirit just as Jesus predicted they would. Jesus said it would come to them, and it has, by, with baptism by water and the Holy Spirit. So therefore, Peter says, if God gave them the same gift he gave those of us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? If God does all this stuff that he promised he would do, all the same stuff that he did for us Jewish people, he's now doing for the Gentile people, and these six guys will back me up. If he's doing all of that, who am I to stand in God's way? That's a big deal for Peter to say. That's not what he said the first time. Remember when the vision of the sheet happens and God says, take and eat? Peter says, no, never. I would never do that. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. That wasn't Peter's attitude at first. His attitude wasn't, okay, God, let's go along with your plan. His attitude at first was to stand in the way of God's plan and refuse to participate in God's plan. I would never eat anything impure or unclean. But now Peter gets the point. Peter sees hard, tangible, eyewitness evidence that what God's doing with the Gentiles is including them in salvation. And so he says to these guys, who am I to stand in the way? But do you see what Peter did there? It's brilliant. Throughout Acts, the enemies of God and his people are those who oppose God's plan. Think of Stephen. When Stephen spoke to the Sanhedrin, he accused them of standing in the way of God's plan when they crucified Jesus. You stood in the way of God's plan when you crucified his son. It was the highest condemnation that he could give them, and they took it as such, so much so that they flew into a murderous rage and killed him. They understood that they were being condemned for standing in the way of God's plan. So the true enemies of God aren't those who don't know God, like the Gentiles. They just don't know God. That doesn't make them enemies. It's the people who claim they know God, but who display no love for God or for others who are always the enemies of God. Always. To be just enough in that you know what you should do and not do it means you are further away from the kingdom of God than people who have never heard the message. That is a consistent teaching throughout the law, throughout the prophets, throughout Jesus. You are worse off if you should know better and don't do it. Always. The true enemies of God are those who, who claim they know him, but put up barriers for others to know him. Those are the people who stand in God's way. Those are the people who need to fear the worst of the judgment and condemnation to come. And Peter is recognizing that these circumcised believers, who are fellow believers, just like Peter is, Christians just as much as he is, but these hardline Jewish followers of Jesus, these ultra-conservative leaders of the church, are threatening to hold just such a position a position that puts them directly in the way of God's plan for redemption for all people, not just Jewish people. They don't like the Gentile people. They don't want the Gentiles included. They think this is a very Jewish thing. But they're threatening to stand in the way of what God is doing, enemies of God. And so, after laying out the events of the previous chapter, and after indicating how these events might prove the presence and purpose of the Holy Spirit, Peter then asks, who am I to stand in the way of God? But really, by phrasing it that way, Peter is presenting a challenge to these 
potential opponents of God's plan. He's pointing one finger at himself, and famously that means all the rest of the fingers are pointing at them. Saying, who am I to stand in God's way? But really, who are we to stand in the way of God's plan? You better make a choice. Are you going to oppose God and be an enemy? Are you going to take the evidence into your heart and accept that God is doing something you never would have expected? Are you sure you want to maintain your hardline stance against God's plan, against God's people? Who are any of us to stand in God's way? If God wants to share the Holy Spirit with Gentiles, if he wants them to be baptized like any believing Jew, if he wants them to have glossolalia, the speaking in tongues, if he wants them to proclaim his glory throughout the Gentile world, who are we to stand in their way? And if he wants to invite the Gentiles to his table, who are we to rip up the invitation and kick them out of the house? That's what Peter's saying to them. He's calling out the circumcised believers, seeing how they will respond to the challenge of a God whose grace is greater than they ever would have assumed. I think there's a similar challenge for us today. Now, remember earlier when I said, at least I didn't make an Edmonton Oilers analogy? Guess what? I've got an Oilers analogy for you. I think it fits, so it's not too much of a stretch. On September 21st, 2013, the Oilers played a preseason game against their hated rivals, the Vancouver Canucks. It's a preseason game. Shouldn't have meant anything, and they usually don't. Should have been unremarkable and unmemorable, except it wasn't. In that game, a young Canucks forward named Zach Cassian went for a hit on Sam Gagne, one of the Oilers' best young players. Cassian missed the hit, but he allowed his stick to follow through, and his stick clocked Gagne in the jaw. Um... Smashed him in the face. Gagne lost four teeth and the first 13 games of the regular season, and he needed a steel plate and a bunch of screws to put his face back together. There was a picture of his face. I was going to show you because it's gruesome. Chose not to. You're welcome. Cassian. Cassian was suspended eight games for the incident, but Oiler fans vowed they would never forgive him for injuring one of their favorite players. One of the bright spots on a truly dreary team to cheer for at those day, in those days. They especially would never forgive Cassian because in their first game back together, Oilers versus Canucks in December of that year, first regular season game where Cassian and Gagne went face-to-face, Cassian openly mocked Gagne for the injury that he, he incurred on him. Oh, just made fun of him for his broken jaw. And for, for all of us, that, that was enough villainy. We would never forgive Zach Cassian. To, to Oilers fans, Zach Cassian was public enemy number one. He was filthy. He was an outsider. He would never be accepted by us Edmontonians. Which is why it was truly amazing news to hear that two years later, December 28th, 2015, uh, just uh, two years after the the stick-swinging incident, Zach Cassian had been traded to the Edmonton Oilers. How would he be accepted by a team and a city that had vilified him and hated him and considered him a worthless outcast? Well, a year and a half after the trade, the Oilers signed him to a three-year $5.85 $5.85 million contract after Cassian made some enormous plays in their one playoff run in a decade. And so he's found a home in a place where he had once been considered a filthy, unacceptable outcast. It's a pretty good redemption story. To the circumcised believers in Acts 11, Gentiles like Cornelius were just like Zach Cassian, filthy outsiders who would never be accepted by God. So how would they react to Peter's challenge about standing in the way of God's plan? They faced a similar choice that Euler fans did in December of 2015. What are we going to do with this guy? Don't we hate him? Don't we not want him? Isn't he a villain? These circumcised believers face the same moment of truth scenario. 
on a much bigger scale than Euler fans did. And so, as it says in, in verse 18, after some stunned silence at the shocking report of the Gentiles accepting the Holy Spirit, the room suddenly erupts with praise to the God who saves even filthy outsiders. Where once there were outbursts of judgment and anxiety and objections, now there are proclamations of delight and worship and thankfulness for the God who saves even those worst of outsiders. Knowing now that those worst of outsiders were no worse than those worst of insiders. There's, there's no, that's what Peter's lesson was. God shows no favoritism. There, there, there is nobody too unclean to be welcomed into the kingdom. There's nobody too far away to be welcomed into God's plan. The very first church conflict was diffused when all the parties involved were willing to take a step back from their own deeply entrenched views of who God accepts and how God works and were able to see his Holy Spirit in action. They had to step back from what they assumed and they had every right to assume that the Gentiles weren't part of the plan. You've been reading the prophets with, every week we read a little bit from the prophets. What do the prophets have to say about the Gentiles, about the pagan nations around them? Not a whole lot of good. They didn't have a lot of good to say about Israel either, but not a whole lot of good. They were definitely outsiders. And so these people had every reason to believe that their custom of excluding them should continue. They had to step back from those preconceived notions. They had to step back from their own feeble grasp on what God is doing and see that God is doing a new thing in a new way. There is new evidence to consider. There are, new, there are beliefs that need to be challenged. His grace is bigger than theirs. They need to not just see him at work. They need to follow him into that work as well. Now, this isn't the last time we'll hear from the conservative pro-circumcision contingent. In chapter 15, they show up again, and they seem to have forgotten this whole thing by then. They're back on the warpath. But for now, they were able to see uh, those who they believe to be filthy outsiders are now brothers and sisters sharing a table in God's kingdom. They laid down their biases, they laid down their bigotries, and they were able to step out of the way of God, step out of the way of God's plan. They were able to fall in line with what God was doing. No longer opponents, no longer enemies, but followers, true disciples. That same challenge, I think, stands before the Church of Christ in 2017 as well. They were able to take that grace that they wanted for themselves and share it with people that they didn't think deserved it. I wonder if we're able to do that same thing. And so the kingdom doors were opened. More places were added to the table, to the feast that Dale talked about in communion time. And the history of the church, again, would never be the same. The challenge is where do we see God at work? Where do we see evidence of God at work? And are we going to continue to oppose that vehemently because of our own preconceived notions? Because of, I mean, their scripture said Gentiles were bad. They had their scripture to fall back on. I wonder if there's some things happening in our world today that should cause us to have conversation about some preconceived biases that we have in the church. I'm not saying I have those answers. Certainly not. Uh, I would be ridiculous to propose that I do. But there are some controversies happening in the church today that require us to sit down and examine what the Holy Spirit is doing, I think. See new evidence in a new way. And then decide what to do from there. I'm not going to get specific about what that might be. Take this as you will. Take, have, 
humility in your beliefs, to have a softness of heart to some biases that we already have. Accept people with the grace that we crave for ourselves. I'll leave you with that. The history of the church would never be the same. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story of Peter um, and his welcoming of the Gentiles into the family. Uh, Father, I pray that we would we would see the expansiveness of your grace in a similar way and that we would err on the side of welcome, err on the side of grace rather than erring on a side of exclusion and and bias and preconceived notions about where you are and what you do. Your love and your grace are enormously, unfathomably big. And we thank you that we get to partake in that grace, that we are welcomed into your family because of your grace. And I pray that we would extend that same love, just as Cornelius did, just as Peter did, that we would extend that same love to those around us who the church considers outsiders. Help us to love in the same way that you love, without seeing them for for issues or for morality, but as somebody who is worthy of love. Help us to love first and welcome into the fold through that. We can't say enough how great your love is for us, Father, and we thank you for that and praise you for it. Um, Help us to see where your Holy Spirit is at work and to fall in line with that. Help us to not stand in the way of work that you're doing. Help us to, to be people who love first. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.